Good morning, church. I was asked to, to first give a little spiel about base camp, uh, because that's not only where I first cut my teeth in teaching, but also where I got very grounded and, and foundational in, in my kind of my steps here at the adventure. And it's really our foundational class. And so if you've never taken it, I really recommend you take it because there's so many core beliefs that you catch within that. You really get to see the Holy Spirit move in a very unique way. Um, he moved a lot in my life, and then even as teaching the class throughout the years, I've been able to see people come to Christ through it. We've been able to, to see people freed from a lot of change. So even if you've taken it before, and it's been a little while, I almost recommend take it again. I think I took it two or three times, um, and, and then started teaching it, and, and kind of just got through the the progression of discipleship that we have here. And, you know, who knows, one day you could be up here teaching about a, a controversial topic. <laughs> um, yeah, so exciting. But it's good to be here. I'm excited to, to, to speak today on women in leadership. Um, I couldn't even, I, I could barely sleep last night. I was, I was excited. It was almost like Christmas Eve. Um, just because this is a topic that is uh, very dear to my heart. Uh, it's a topic I have a lot of passion for, and it's a, a topic that I feel like the church needs to address more, not just the adventure, but I think the church in general just needs to address more. I think it's a topic we're afraid to talk about, and that's one reason I love it, because one of those reasons is is the controversialness of it and, and being able to, to clarify and point to Scripture over this, because it really shouldn't be a controversial issue. Uh, if we look at Scripture and we look at it with clear eyes and without our own presuppositions, it's, it's pretty clear on what it's saying. So let's pray, shall we? Father, I just pray that I decrease and you increase today, God. Lord, let this not be um, a sermon I pull from my own wealth of knowledge, but really from your wealth, God. Lord, open our hearts, open our eyes. Help us to see what your word has to say on this topic from a complete structure, Lord, from Genesis to Revelation. How is this topic addressed by you in your word, in your word alone? Well, let us not leave today unchanged. Work in our hearts, work in our minds. Free the chains that people have on this issue. Let this not be an issue that divides, but an issue that brings unity within equality, God. Let us no longer divide over this issue, but let this issue be something we can rally around, something we can lift up, something that we can, we can hold dear as, as unique among you and how you view your people. In your glorious name, amen. All right, who's ready to talk about women in leadership? <clears throat> Woohoo! Well, I, I thought I'd first do is, is do a little preface. I'm going to do a lot of prefacing and a lot of introduction before I get into the text. Because in my experience, there's a lot of strawman fallacies that are happening with this topic. I can't tell you how many times I've tried to discuss this topic and it gets misrepresented over and over and over again. And so I'm going to try to catch that before it begins. And I'm going to try to address these strawman fallacies beforehand. And what that means is it's just misrepresentation of what these texts mean and what this issue can mean. The first thing I should say is that I am not a representative of the LGBTQ community. All right. Um, this wasn't an issue I thought about probably until about three or four years ago. All right. That's what, that wasn't persuaded me. That hasn't swayed my thoughts. Okay. But it's always something that I get thrown at for some reason. Okay. So I'm just going to tell you that's, I'm not a representative of that. I believe marriage is between a man and a woman and that uh, sexual morality is a sin. Amen. I'm also not a feminist. Okay. The, the F word. Um, that is not something that I've ever thought of myself. I've never looked at that. I don't even know much about the feminist movement. But what I do know, and what I have observed through my studies of history, is that most um, revolts come through oppression. Wouldn't you say that? How many revolts have happened at times of peace and, and openness? I can't think of any. Usually revolts happen in times of oppression. So when we see these, these mass movements of revolt, we have to look, what's being oppressed? What is being oppressed? Why is the feminist movement such a coming out of this such an oppression. And I think this issue has something to do with it because the church has done an oppression, unfortunately. And that's one thing I wanted to address. But I wanted to say that I'm not a part of, of that movement, okay? I believe in the inerrancy of the Bible and hold it to, as my foundation of truth. 
I think too often this, this topic gets misrepresented and say, oh, because if you believe women in leadership, therefore you don't stand on the Bible as a foundation of truth. And that's just not true. That's a false claim. I stand on the Bible as my, my leader of truth. So this is a woman in leadership sermon, not a women in ministry sermon. I think there's a difference between these. Both sides of the, of the camps, they both agree that women in ministry is important. But we have to have women involved in ministry. I would say that even most theologians would say that there is a place and purpose for, for women, no matter what side of the fence you sit on. You don't see the prohibition of women in ministry anymore. I think 40 years ago, you probably did. If you talk to the, some of the, the ladies who are teaching in, in seminaries these days, they would say that, you know, depending on when they came through seminary, they would most likely say that they were kind of dissuaded from pursuing the degree 40, 30, 40 years ago because of this. So we're already seeing this transformation occur. Women are now encouraged to be in ministry. But there's still a prohibition in a lot of churches that are women in leadership. And so I'm addressing women in leadership in particular, not necessarily women in ministry. And of course, above all, I'm not here to divide the body. I'm not here to divide the body. This doesn't have to be a divisive issue. But to merely show that there is freedom found in the Word of God. There is freedom found in the word of God through unity and equality. Unity and equality. And that's why I've named this sermon Unity and Equality. We are one in union with Jesus Christ. We are one in union with Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.28 is, is a perfect example. It says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen. All right, there's my preface. Okay, I, hopefully I addressed all the straw man fallacies. Okay, I'm sure there's some out there, but those are the main ones that I usually get approached about and, and get misrepresented with. So let's talk about the introduction here before I get into some of the, the deeper texts, because we're going to look at some Greek today. We're going to look at some Hebrew today. So hopefully you are prepared for that. So let's talk about, first off, some misconceptions of, of women in church leadership. I think one misconception that I hear often is there are very few biblical scholars who agree with women in leadership. They, it doesn't seem like there's a huge voice out there, and that's just not true. I, don't, I think that sometimes we yell, we don't yell the loudest. I think that's true. I think there's a lot louder voices out there for the prohibition of women in leadership. But there are many, 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 many scholars out there, men and women, who are for women in church leadership. Two of them I, I absolutely adore reading and are very big heavyweights in the theological space. One of them is Millard Erickson. He wrote a book called Christian Theology. He literally wrote the book on Christian theology. Right? He talks about systematic theology, which we're going to look at later. But he is a very big advocate for women in church leadership, and he doesn't see any prohibitions throughout Scripture. Another one is Dr. Douglas Grotheis. He's a professor at Denver Seminary, and he is, if you ever read any of his stuff and any, watch his any videos, he's very passionate about this subject. Him and his wife have addressed this subject for years. But he wrote the book on Christian apologetics, the very defense of the Christian faith. It's a, it's a huge work I've read. It's about this big, about this thick. It's massive. I had to read it in, to get my master's, and it's amazing because you think about it, this guy wrote an entire work on the defense of the Christian faith. And yet he is also an advocate for this. And then many, many, many more. So there's many people who believe this. I think it's simple and too easy to fall into the fact that, wow, we're the only ones who believe this. And that's just not true. We're just not yelling the loudest. <clears throat> and then the second thing, misconception I want to talk about is you cannot have unity within the body because of this topic. Again, that is false. You can have unity even if you don't all agree on this topic. Dr. James Beck, another professor of, at Denver Seminary, who was an advocate for women in leadership, he had this to say. <clears throat> he said, The need for a more ironic, more of a, it's a reconciliation spirit among proponents of both sides, he's talking about the, the two sides of, of women in leadership, of this debate is as strong as ever. Too often more heat than light emerges when people get together to debate about women in ministry. The church cannot afford to waste precious energy and time on advocacy reflecting excess and overkill. The enemies who truly threaten the integrity of the church are outside its walls, not inside its walls. Do you guys agree with that? 
So we need to approach this also with less heat and more light. I like how he said that because too often we can get kind of uh, defensive and kind of dig our, our heels into the, the sand and we can come off as fleshly and angry and bitter. And, and I think that's the wrong, that, that is the wrong approach. Okay? And I think both sides are guilty of this. We need to understand that we are not each other's enemies. There's a bigger picture here. Okay? We are not each other's enemies. We are called to be peacemakers. Amen? And we can do that through this. This does not have to divide the body. You can have unity regardless of this. But how do we do that? How do we have unity when there's so much supposedly division or supposed division among the body of Christ today? One reason, one how, one, I guess one way we can do that, I should say, is through the systematic theology of dogma, doctrine, and opinion. Dogma, doctrine, and opinion. When I was getting my master's, this was a, a concept that absolutely blew my mind. And I'm going to share it with you. How important are items in Scripture and the frequency they are talked about is kind of a paraphrase of what systematic theology really is. So with dogmatics... And look at the dogmatic theological concepts. Think of it as, what would you take a bullet for? What are the theological concepts that you would take a bullet for? These are the things you do not compromise. These are things like Christ's sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection. Jesus as the Messiah. Is Jesus God in the flesh? Those are all things I would happily be a martyr for. Hopefully all of you would think the same. Those are dogmatic issues. Those are things we put our heels in the sand and say, no, there's no compromise on these. And then you get to the doctrinal, kind of doctrinal level. These are things that you would say, I feel strongly about due to my conviction in Scripture. And some of these, uh, uh, or all of these issues are not dealing with any kind of salvation. Okay, so these are doctrinal issues. Women in leadership, I would put into this group. Baptism by immersion and sprinkling, I would put into this group, since baptism isn't a, um, a doctrine that is Salvitic. And then this is where we get a lot of our denominations. Denominations are, are splitting because of, of doctrinal misconceptions. So we need to understand that's secondary to the dogmaticism. What's the dogmatics? What are the doctrinal items? And then finally, what is the opinion what are the opinion items? And these are the things that say, I'm not really sure, but I can take an educated guess. You look at all the visualizations in Revelation, and you're like, I, I think it's going to say, I think it's coming like this. Is Jesus really going to come in on a white horse? I don't know, maybe. You know, it's, it's going to happen. I know that. That's dogmatic. But I can't give you all of the details around it, okay? Because it hasn't happened yet. Tattoos are another one. Can I get a tattoo, Pastor? Well, I mean, I have one. You know, I have an opinion on it, right? And so we have to make sure that we're taking the proper perspective. What, is, what are our dogmatics? What are our doctrinals? And what are our opinions? Because if women in leadership is a, doc, or a, a dogmatic issue, you're going to cause a lot of division. If you're putting it up there with the Selvitic nature of, uh, of what God has done, you're going to cause a lot of division because your perspective is going to be skewed. So we have to keep those three in line. And really, that's a, that's a game changer for the body of Christ. If we can keep those things in line things will be a lot easier to be unified. And then doctrine and opinion matters should never cause division. Romans 14.1 is a a great example of Paul kind of addressing this. He says, Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Now, I'm not saying that if if you're against women in leadership that your faith is weak. I think you're wrong, but I don't say your faith is weak. I would say your faith is weak if you feel like you need to have bitterness over this, if you need to have a heated argument, if you need to sit down with somebody and yell at them how they're wrong and they don't stand on the, on the, on the word of God because of this issue. I think that maybe you have a little bit of a weaker faith. And what you do with that is then you don't go to people who you know are struggling with this issue and throw it in their face, okay? And the same thing with the other way. You, be, you have to be gentle with people who are struggling with this topic, a lot of times when I'm talking with people and I know that they have a, a bondage to this issue, I'll usually just sit and listen. Because I know no matter what I say, I'm not going to change their mind. Their heels are in the sand. I'm going to let them speak their peace. I'm going to ask questions. But I'm not going to throw it in their face. So there's a differences of opinion that are going to happen in church. When you, when you look at the book of Acts, a lot of times you see that, that phrase, they have one heart and one mind. And that's been misconstrued to think, well, they're all the same opinion. That is not true. It doesn't take long to talk to somebody long enough to realize you have some difference in opinion. 
But what it's talking about in Acts is that they had one common goal. They shared their possessions for the glory of God. They came together for the glory of God. They, 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 were, gener- they were generous with their things with the glory of God. They had one mission, one purpose. That is what it means to be one heart, one mind. Not that we all have the same opinion. If you look at all the different church planning models that are in this world, you should understand that's not true. And I've read of many, many, many in Utah County. I'm probably going to have to develop our own because it just doesn't work. So there's no excuses to divide. We listen to each other with respect. We have differences, um, and then they can be a source of richness in relationships. Opinions are important in the body of Christ. We need to have conversation around these things, but we don't need to divide over that. And when you think about it, that's what brought people into the body of Christ. At the very foundation of Christianity was the, the unity that the body had. Where thousands of people would get together and the, the unbelievers would look at this and they'd say, wow, I want to be a part of that. But when you divide and you look at an issue like this and you say, you know what, because of, of women in leadership, I'm not going to be a part of that, of that body. Do you think an unbeliever is going to look at that and go, I want to be a part of that too? Absolutely not. I wouldn't. We got to have unity. We got to have a perspective. Our perspective is extremely important within the church because without it, we, we tend to treat the church less sacred. We, t- we treat it as, a, as just an organization, a, a place to come on Sunday. It's not the really sacred temple that God has developed here in these times. The church would have far more unity today if we all understood and kept perspective within dogma, doctrine, and opinion. And two things, too, is we need to understand an eternal perspective versus a temporary perspective. There's a great story of, of a foreign missionary who came over to the States, and he was asked, what's the biggest difference between what your ministry has, the things you've observed with God there and here in the States? And he says, Americans don't have eternal perspective. They have a temporary perspective. The American church focuses too much on the temporary rather than the eternal. Let me ask you this question. Would you, would you be so quick to divide if you knew you were going to spend eternity with those you were dividing against? If you looked at that person, you knew they were a believer, and you said, you know what, I'm going to walk away I'm going to be divisive. I'm going to talk, slander, whatever that is. Would you do the same thing if you knew eternity with that person was inevitable? I don't think we would. I think that we would kind of second guess that a little bit. What if we acted toward each other as if we were all spending eternity together like we are? The ones who believe in Jesus, the, the brothers and sisters in Christ, if we treated people that way, what if we looked at the eternal perspective uh, a great quote that I read, I don't remember who it comes from. Sometimes I just read things and it just kind of sticks. I don't remember who says it. But it was, becoming wrapped up in any theology to the extent of excluding to love people is the recipe for a Pharisee. Becoming wrapped up in any theology to the extent of excluding to love people is the recipe of a Pharisee. We must not lose our ability to love. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3 backs this up. It says, If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I am nothing but the cracking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I am nothing. If I give everything to own, everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So, no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Our eternal perspective needs to be around love, not temporary issues with a doctrine and opinion on these matters. Because with that, we can have unity for a common goal of reaching people. I can't tell you how many Christians that I've asked, hey, let's go pray at, at the LDS temples or, or let's go just walk around campuses. And they'll say, no, I just can't be affiliated with you because you believe in this issue. And it, it, I, it blows my mind. I'm like, people are dying and you want to divide over this. We can't allow that to happen any longer if we expect to see God move in Utah. Okay. 
Got my intro out, got my preface out. Get off my soapbox. Let's look at some scripture. All right, so we're going to look at three types of things. We're looking at creation first. We're going to look at leadership prohibitions, question mark. And then I'm going to give you some, in my conclusion, I'm going to give you examples of women in leadership in the Old Testament and in the early church. All right, so let's do this. The first thing we're going to look at is creation. Creation is a very important aspect to look at when it comes to this because a lot of the references of the prohibitions are going back to creation. And so we first must build our, our theology and understanding around what is God saying within male and female within creation. And Genesis 1 and 2 shows that there is equality among Adam and Eve. There's not hierarchy. There's equality. There's not subordination. There's equality. There's unity within the equality of creation. So though male and female are very distinct, both share in the likeness of God, equal in value, and in essence, neither gender is exalted and neither is depreciated. They stand equal under God. Genesis 5.2 is a great example. It says, when God created mankind, Adam, that literally means mankind, Adam, Adam, he made them in the likeness of God. He made them in the likeness of God. Wasn't made Adam in the likeness of God and then Eve in the likeness of Adam. No, he says he made them together in complete essence in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. He created them distinct and blessed them. He didn't bless Adam to get to Eve. He blessed both of them together equally. And he named them mankind. Again, he uses the word Adam when they were created. Now, you have to understand, Hebrew talks functionally, Greek talks in in forms. And so when he's talking about mankind, he's talking about the functionality of mankind. What were they functioning as? They were functioning as together a a perfect unit in what he had commanded them to do. So one thing, too, is they were both male and female. And together they commanded to exercise dominion over the earth and subdue it. Genesis 1, 26 and 28. And to say that they ruled, the Hebrew word is rada, speaks of mankind ruling dominion of creation collectively. They both ruled. They both subdued. It wasn't one or the other. There is, no, there is nothing in those passages that say that Adam ruled more over Eve or whatnot. It's, it's a complete collectiveness of rulership. They weren't created in separate spheres to rule. They were both public and private. They, co- they collectively ruled together. Both are given the task of being fruitful and multiplying. Obviously, that one would have been hard to do without the other one. So there's collectiveness there. Men and women were created as spiritual equals as they were both blessed by God. Genesis 1.28. So both received the blessing of God. There's equality within the unity. Both are personally accountable to God. God doesn't only speak through the man, but he also speaks directly to the woman. But the both of them, in, they don't but not individually. I guess to them individually is what I'm trying to say. So he talks to Adam and he talks to Eve directly. We see him talking to Eve in Genesis 3, 16 through 19. So there's two main issues that usually come up when talking about creation. And I want to address those. I I tried to pick the ones that I felt were the most um, traditional in how women are prohibited. And we're going to look at those issues today and show you how that's not prohibition, It's actually a form of equality. So the first thing that most people look at is, well, wasn't Eve created as the man's helper? And doesn't helper create some kind of subordination? So hierarchists will look at that and say, well, male is created before female, therefore there's there's a hierarchy there, therefore there's subordination. And the important thing to understand is Adam is a gender-neutral identification. It can go either male or female in the verb or in the in the pronoun. Uh, of Hebrew. It means human or humankind and uses and is used for the creation of both male and female. Again, we see that in Genesis one twenty seven. So God created mankind, Adam, in his own image, and the image of God he created them, male and female. He created them. Again, distinct but equal. So Hebrew uses the word zakar for male and the keba for female. So there's different words for male and female. When God is using Adam in this type of context, he's talking about collective humanity. So there's a collective unit. You look at Adam and Eve, you can't distinctify them. They're, they're collective. They're one. So if they're equal, then why is the woman a helper? The word used for helper is azer. 
within that passage. And some argue that this means the woman has a subordinate role to man, as a, as a subordinate helper. She's there to help the man. She's there to, to be his, his helper. It's kind of a subordinate. We think about that, right, in, in kind of our own culture and tradition. The problem with this interpretation is that out of the 19 times it is used, 15 of those it is used to show how God alone is our helper. So if we try to insert a subordinate role for women into that, we have to also look at the consistency of Scripture and say, well, if that's the case in Genesis, why is it not the case in Psalms? Is God subordinate to us? And I argue that's a big no. Psalm 121, 1 through 2 is a great example. I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help, Azer, come from? My help, Azer, comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. It's talking about a partnership. It's talking about a partnership. In other places, Azer is used for even a mightier army to help the Israelites. So God is not a submissive helper to mankind. Amen. It's a talking about a partnership. A better word to use is that Eve was Adam's partner. There was a completeness in that. And it fits really well with Genesis 2, 18 through 20, which is where that, virgin, that word is used. You know, males, alone, males were alone in the garden before the creation of Eve, and God judged that as not good. It was not good for male to be alone. To the woman... And hence, the woman is created for the man, making a perfect and complete partnership. It wasn't very good until Eve came. The completion was, was done. This again teaches sameness and oneness, not male or female superiority. Right? So Azer, the helper, that's not a, a subordinate position. That is an equal position. That is a unification of male and female together for a purpose of glorifying God, being submissive only to him and not to each other. And then another one I hear a lot is man was created first. Man was created first, therefore there's hierarchy. The problem with that idea is that the male, or the problem with that is the idea that male is above the woman due to the fact that that he was created first just is not found in the rest of Scripture. We have this kind of a, a connotation in our culture that first is best and second is less. I think that's really foundational in our culture from going from, from the early Greeks. I think that's kind of an influence they've carried with us, that if you're not first, you're last, like Ricky Bobby said. I, didn't, I wasn't planning on sharing that. It just popped in there. However, the problem with this idea is that if God was not, if God was creating an order of hierarchy, okay, let's say that he was, the problem with that idea is that the animals were created before Adam. The verse preceding the creation of man is the animals were created before him. So if we're looking at the creation event as a hierarchical point, we have to look at that. And we know from the rest of scripture that that's not true. That the animals all of creation were given to Adam and Eve, to rule over. But that's not something that's brought up. It needs to be. If the animals are are a greater hierarchy than us, then our worldview is skewed. And then Jesus, in his own kingdom, talks about and kind of refutes the first is best and second is less component. He says, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. He turns the world upside down. He refutes hierarchy. And another one I hear a lot is, he will rule over you. Now we're getting into the sin component. The sin component. In, uh, in Genesis 3, we see the fall of man. That's woman and man and the fall. And he directly speaks to Eve in Genesis 3.16b, which is the second part of that verse. He says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And I can't tell you how many times that's used to prohibit women in leadership. And it blows my mind because it's in a cause and effect of sin situation. So the majority of Genesis scholars even agree that this is a descriptive statement, not a prescriptive statement. It's cause and effect. It's not God saying, you do this. It's because you sin, this will be the result of this. It's a descriptive statement, not a prescriptive statement. So because of Eve's sin, her husband will rule over her, 
will have a desire for her husband, just as now the ground is cursed with thorns, and her husband will have to labor in the fields. It is a negative element of sin, not a positive. Just as childbirth, or the pain in childbirth, is not a positive. I have a 16-week pregnant wife who's not looking forward to that aspect of life. It doesn't mean that if the husband doesn't rule over his wife, that it's a sin. Because guess what? He also said that there's thorns and thistles. And who, are, who, who gardens in here? Does anybody garden? I don't garden, but... You wouldn't consider it a sin to remove the thorns and thistles from your flower bed, would you? Because if God is saying this is a prescriptive, then it's a sin that you are removing those things because he put those there. And you wouldn't believe in the history of, of, of humanity how many men have said, because you women are having a baby, you cannot take pain medications because it's supposed to, be, supposed to hurt. That is a real fact. We don't see that anymore, thank God. But it was something my grandparents for sure saw. It's, it's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It's saying because of this, these are the results of what will happen. So what does it mean that he will rule over her? What does it mean that desire, her desire will, will look to her husband? What does that mean? Well, the first thing we look at is desire. The Hebrew word there is teshuka. Say that with me. Teshuka. It's a fun word to say. It often means desire, but it also has a connotation of turning. So you're turning your desire. And so what God is saying here is that the woman will no longer turn to God for her desire, but her fulfillment, her identity, her being will now turn to the man. She will seek after her husband and go, give me what I need. Give me the emotional support. Give me everything I'm going to require. And women, you, you tell me, is that something that is so drawn to you that you must have your husband's acceptance? Because that is a result of the fall. Walter Kaiser, president of the Gordon Cornwell or Conwell Theological Seminary, wrote this about this passage. He said, The sense of Genesis 3.16 is simply this. As a result of her sin, Eve would turn away to Shuka from her sole dependence on God and turn now to her husband. And that rule over you is then the man's sin of going, because of who I am, I am now going to rule you. He takes that for advantage. Our patriarchal societies have been birthed out of this. That now the man has, understands, well, I'm going to rule you now. It's not a positive component. It's not how God designed it. It's the result of the fall. So the woman's desire can turn from seeking God's approval to her husband's. This is a bondage that has now been placed on the woman, wanting her to be under the subjection of her husband instead to God. The unity and equality of creation and man and woman has been skewed. Genesis 1 and 2 changes with Genesis 3. There's a, there's a difference there. And we're going to look at how God has taken that and reverted it back to creation. So at creation, male and female are given the same authority, the same blessing and likeness. There was nothing in the text to show they had differing functions until after the fall. Before that, there was perfect and complete equality among them. It isn't until sin occurs that the equality is skewed, something we still contend with today, but don't have to thanks to Jesus Christ. So Jesus calls for the return of this equal union when he says in Mark 10, 7, to 8, 7 and 8, For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. He takes the sin of Genesis 3, the division, the separation, the differences, and he says, no longer are there two, but there are one. Man and, man and woman have been brought into one in Jesus Christ. He reverts and refutes the end of Genesis 3 and creates it back into Genesis 1 and 2 and says you are now equal and united in essence and being and blessing. And we're going to look at how Holy Spirit falls on both, not men and women distinctively. Did you guys get something out of that? All right, good. Well, let's jump into the real good stuff. Leader prohibitions. New Testament. 
All right. So I'm going to look at a couple different passages. The first one is 1 Timothy 3.2 or Titus 1.5. They both have the same thing. But I'm looking at one particular aspect, which is man of one woman. And the second one I'm looking at is 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, because what would be a sermon on women in leadership without 1 Timothy 2, 11, 1 through 15? All right. So man of one woman, let's look at that. So you find this, this, this phrase throughout all of the, well, not all of it, but a lot of the New Testament. Any time of leadership requirements, anything like that, you usually see a man of one woman. You'll see it in the Greek. It's mias gunaikos anera. Anera, sorry, anera. I got my Greek mixed up. Mias gunaikos andra. You see that a lot too. It means a one-woman man. One-woman man. The man of one wife. You hear it a lot translated very differently. And have you, I've seen this so used, prohibit women in leadership. All the time. All the time. It's discussing with people. It's something that everyone always goes to. Oh, it says the woman of, or the man of one wife. A one-woman man. Doesn't it mean that the leadership, the elders, the overseers, the deacons, they all need to be men? Because it's used in every single one of those passages. First Timothy 3, 2 through 7. I'm going to read it for you here. And in the English, you're going to think, yeah, absolutely right. But we're going to lift the hood and we're going to look at some of the, the Greek. It says, here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now, the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife. There's the one-woman-man portion that NIV translated as faithful to his wife, which I think is a great translation. Temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do it as so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Now I can see when you read that, yeah, absolutely, there is a prohibition of, of women in leadership. It says he all the time. It says man. But the problem is, and I'm going to keep this really short because it's really the, the, the lower-hanging fruit out of these more controversial ones, is that there is nothing in this passage in the Greek that disqualifies women from leadership. And in fact, a lot of the guys who are hierarchical thinking and the guy, the, some of the top scholars who would, would, would argue that women shouldn't be in leadership positions will say that this passage does not disqualify women. And I'm going to show you why. And I'll give you two Two guys in particular. So these are two of the, the big theologians who are against women in leadership. And Douglas Moo, again, love these guys. I read their stuff. I just disagree with them on this issue. He wrote, The phrase one woman man does not exclude unmarried men or females from the office. It would be going too far to argue that the phrase clearly excludes women. So here you have one of the powerhouse theologians and someone who doesn't agree with having women in leadership saying this passage does not disqualify women. Again, we're going to look at that. Thomas Schreiner, another one of those, he says, the requirements for elders in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 and Titus 1, 6 through 9 include the statement that they are to be one woman men. This does not necessarily in, in itself preclude women from serving as elders. So even the hierarchical camps are, sorry, no, this isn't, this does not exclude women which is really interesting to me because this is one of the main chapters that I get approached about with why women shouldn't be in leadership positions. And I just like to say, well, your own scholars would disagree with you. So one of the reasons why this is not a prohibition is that there are no male pronouns in the original language. When Paul is writing in Greek, he doesn't use him, his, he. Those are inserted for English speakers because that's how we speak, Okay. Paul is not using male pronouns. In fact, the only pronoun he uses is tis. It's It's whomever. It's that gender neutral, could be male or female. So when he says whoever aspires, he's talking about male or female. Now it's called the, the, the masculine general, generalization of masculinity, I like to call it. We see it all over Hebrew. We see it all over Greek. We use it today. You'd be surprised that Proverbs 31 is, is not the only proverb for women, right? There's a lot of, all the Proverbs are for both male and female. But again, most of the Proverbs are going to say he, men, 
that guy, boy, whatever it is. Right? It's called the, 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 gen, or the, the general masculinity. It's not a, a prohibition of that. And even Douglas B. and Thomas Schreiner would agree with that. So the only pronoun in there is the gender neutral male or female, whomever. Whomever aspires to be an overseer is what he's saying. The rest is inserted into the English text. And then one of the most profound ways that it's not a prohibition is that Paul is using a first century idiom. The man of one wife is a first century Greek idiom. The definition of an idiom is a phrase, construction, or expression that is recognized as a unit in the usage of giving of given language and either differs from the usual synectic patterns or has a meaning that differs from the literal meaning of its parts taken together. If I was to say the grass is greener on the other side, I'm not talking about grass. Okay? That is a, that's an English idiom. And we're seeing an idiom that Paul is using in the first century. That's why it's always the same. He uses the same idiom in every kind of passage that's talking about leadership qualifications. In the New Testament occurrences, woman-man is a unit, always used together. It also differs from usual synactic patterns and conjoining nouns without explaining their interrelationships. So Paul is clearly speaking that an overseer must have a monogamous relationship. That's why the NIV translate is faithful to his wife, faithful to their spouse, they are to be loyal. They are to be not polygamists. Even John Chrysostom, one of the, the greatest early church fathers that we know of, he says, this he, Paul, does not lay down a rule as if he, the overseer, must not be without one, a wife, but is prohibiting his having more than one. So even the early church fathers recognized this isn't a prohibition of women. It's a prohibition of having more than one wife. It's a prohibition of, of being, infa- in, or not being, or being inf- what is the word? Not being loyal. Let's just say that. I can't think of the word on top of my head. English is hard. It is an exclusion of polygamy and sexual infidelity, not a prohibition of women from being an overseer. So we need to lift the hood and look at the actual Greek. So one woman man is also used for a deacon in 5.13, the same phrase, to which we know there were women deacons. Phoebe in 16.1. She's called the deacon. So it's not a prohibition of women in leadership. It's a prohibition of having more than one wife or more than one spouse or, more, or, or not being loyal to your spouse. So that's a qualification to be an overseer. You have to have loyalty to, if you're married, to your spouse. All right, you guys, is that clear? That's the low-hanging fruit. Let's go for the, the more complicated one briefly. 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. This is the one that probably is the big, the big, the big honker when it comes to prohibition of women leadership. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. I tell you, if I didn't look under the hood on that one, I'd say, yeah, you're right. Women should probably be prohibited. But there's very unique words that Paul uses in the Greek. Very unique. It is a prohibition. Okay? He is prohibiting something in this. But the question we must ask ourselves is, is it a universal prohibition? Or is it a direct prohibition for the Ephesian church? Because he's, directing Timothy, he's talking to Timothy in the church of Ephesus. So if this was a universal prohibition, we'd have to say, well, there's no Bible teachers that can be women. There's no preachers that can be women. There's no children teachers who can be women. Can women teach their own male children even? Which is interesting because Timothy was first instructed by his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunike. So if that's true, I mean, teaching just in general is over for women, right? Because there's no, there's, no there's no differencing in what that means. It just says no teaching. If that's what the universal prohibition is. The answer of this and how it's a direct prohibition is found in the context of this passage. And a text without a context is a pretext. We must understand what is happening at this time. So Timothy is charged with dealing with false teachers. That's the whole purpose of how by Paul is talking to Timothy is there is false teaching and you must address it. And then in 1 Timothy 1, 3, 6-7 we see this. He says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines and any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. 
Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. That's the context. That's the reason why Paul is writing this to Timothy. So what we see in Ephesus is a vast number of the women of Ephesus were succumbing to false teaching. And in first century Jewish culture, women were not allowed to study or receive an education. They weren't allowed to attend synagogue. So Paul is saying, Man, we're opening the doors. Men and women are coming in and they're learning these truths for the first time. Especially the Jewish women who, imagine if you've never heard the creation story. You never understood that. We heard, we heard from thinking about it, but what Paul is doing, what God is doing, is he's opening the doors and saying, here's an amazing opportunity to learn. Something that these women have never got to experience. And these false teachers that are coming in and going, actually, it means this. This is what this means. And we see it around mythologies and genealogies, which is a very Jewish thing. In verses 8 through 12, he is referring to male and women distinctly, but addressing collective principles. If you look at the, the passages before, it's, it's saying, men, pray to God and lift up holy hands. That's not just a distinctly male thing to do. I mean, hopefully a lot of you women are praying too, okay? Hopefully you're raising holy hands at the same time. He says also, women, don't find your worth in, in adorning yourselves in these, in these um, fancy jewels and things like that. That can also go to men. Men, don't spend time with vanity, Okay, they, they go back and forth. Paul isn't just saying only women have this problem and only men have this problem. Okay, there's, there's, there's collection there. It should only, Paul is addressing a direct prohibition for the Ephesian church and women within this historical context, and it should not be taken as a universal prohibition of women to, have, to teach or have authority over a man. Now, there's a lot of debate. There's a lot of question around, okay, what are these false teachings that women were falling into? And historically, the one that I find the most compelling is an early form of Gnosticism. You guys heard of Gnosticism before? So there's, Gnosticism really was started about 50 AD to about 100 AD, and then it carries off to the to second and third centuries and really catches on. But what we see in the earliest form of Gnosticism is how Eve, in particular, is lifted up as the originator of man— and the very core of Gnosticism is that the fall was a very good thing so that we could have enlightenment and knowledge. Enlightenment and knowledge fights our ignorance of sin. So it takes what the gospel start of is what sin is a problem and turns on its head and says, actually, the sin and the fall were a good thing. And that Eve is the originator of man. And because of that, you, have, you women have an empowering because of, of your, your special place. And this is what I argue is the false teaching that the women were falling into. They were going around saying, and you think about the time of Ephesus, they have the, the, the cult of Artemis there. And these women had a lot of power. So you imagine these women coming out of cults like that and being like, wow, you're right. Like I'm Eve, I'm the originator of all mankind. And, and because of my sin, we can have enlightenment and we don't have to be ignorant anymore because they looked at the, the, the creation as, as an ignorant time. And you can see Paul seeing this and go, what? No. That's not true. That's false. And these uneducated women in Ephesus didn't have a proper understanding of the correct doctrine relating to the Genesis creation event. And therefore were spreading false teachings. These false knowledge, this false knowledge seems to have caused women to be more domineering and usurping. You can imagine a, a wife and a husband relationship with this. Where the husband is in the synagogue and he's talking about creation. And the woman says, no, 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 no wait, wait, wait. Nope, actually, we are the originators of mankind. It's because of our sin that you can even have knowledge. That's very Gnostic. They're domineering, they're usurping the very concept of what it is in creation. And that's when he used, that's why Paul uses the word authentane with authority, not exousia. Exousia is the proper, legitimate authority that has been given to us. Authentine, authentine is, the, is the usurped authority. It's the negative type of authority. And in Greek, we look at forms. There's always two. We look at kings, for example. An uh, uh, improper, illegitimate king is a tyrannos, a tyrant. The, the legitimate king is a basileos. You have Alexander the Great as a basileos. And you have tyrants all through Greek history. And it's the same thing. We have authentane, the negative element of authority, which is unfortunate that our derivative authority came from that. And we have exousia, which is the correct, proper term. He uses authentane. 
There's something going on here. It's not a word that's used very often in Greek. It's a very unusual word to use, which is why we know there's something going on here that, that's below the surface. That's why it's important to lift the hood and look at the Greek. That's why Bible study is so important. Women in Ephesus thought this different knowledge was more correct. The women were teaching an early form, again, of Gnostic teaching that women were the originators of man and that Eve brought the spiritual enlightenment knowledge to Adam because she sinned first. Again, they take the fall as a good thing and it turns everything upside down. The principle Paul is making here, however, the main thing he wants to say is don't allow new believers to get up and teach right away. That's why someone who gets saved tomorrow, we're not going to ask them to give a sermon the next day. They have to learn. They have to be, learn how to be submissive. And he's not saying, women, be quiet. He's saying, be calm. The same thing he says to the Corinthian women. He says, be calm. Be calm. Learn. You get a chance to learn. Learn so that you can go and teach. It's not a prohibition of universality. It's a prohibition of these women who've never got to hear and understand what the creation of it was all about. It's coming from these false teachers, these Gnostic men, most likely. And it has nothing to do with women being more susceptible to false teachings because I can look around and I can tell you through history, more false teachings come from men than women. Wouldn't you agree? We're in Utah for crying out loud, right? <laughs> so with that in mind, I, mean, I, don't, I didn't put a slide up, so I have to look it up real quick, sorry. The old-fashioned way. First Timothy uh, 2, 13 through 15 now makes a lot of sense when you look at it this way. Now, if creation order was now skewed, and, Eve was, and these women were going around saying, Eve is the originator of all man. Now think of that and read 13 through 14. It says, for Adam, this is Paul refuting and rebuttaling this type of concept. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. He's not saying it's, it's, it, wasn't, it originated, didn't start with you, woman. He says, it wasn't a good thing. Knowledge didn't happen. It was sin. The first step in understanding the gospel is understand your condition. And Paul is refuting the Gnostic concept that is birthed in 50 AD, which this is written in 64 AD, so it works really well. This was starting to catch on. He's refuting that. And then he says, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, holiness, and propriety. And if you're just reading that without a context, you're like, man, I got to have some children so I can get saved. And that's not what he's saying. Paul is, trying, Paul is not trying to create a, a hierarchy of subordination. He's trying to point them to the childbearing event. Childbearing is a noun in this passage. He's not talking about it in a verb, as we might read it. It's a noun. He's saying there's a childbearing event that occurs that brings with it faith, love, holiness, and self-control. And he's pointing them to this. He's pointing them to Jesus. The childbearing event. The seed of Eve, as Genesis talks about. The one who rises and kills the serpent, the serpent kills him. That's the seed, that's the childbearing event he is referring to. Not the originator of woman, from, or not the origination, not hierarchy, nothing like that. In fact, all you Calvinists will love this. John Calvin even says this about 1 Timothy 2, 13 through 14. The reason which Paul assigns that woman was second in the order of creation appears not to be a very strong argument in favor of her subjection. For John the Baptist was before Christ in order of time and yet was greatly inferior in rank. Even John Calvin says you can't, you can't hierarch this. You can't use this for subordination or subjection. God gave us the childbirth event. It brought reconciliation. He was bringing reconciliation for female false teachers. He was trying to refute, correct, and get, hey, Timothy, use this. This is how you refute this rebuttal. This is how you battle false teaching with Gnosticism. Because the women were sinning in Ephesus because of it, leading people astray. He is telling Timothy, do not have the women celebrate the fall of Eve that brought pain and childbearing to celebrate the child that was born through the childbearing event of Jesus Christ who restores mankind to its original intent. That's what 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15 is about. Learn before you teach 
And you will find faith, love, holiness, and self-control through the power that comes through the child-bearing event, Jesus Christ. So in conclusion, I know I went over a little sorry. Conclusion. Throughout Scripture, we find leaders who are women. Deborah was a prophet, the wife of Lepioth, who was leading Israel at the time. We find in the New Testament, Andronicus and Junia, who suffered along with Paul in prison, were outstanding among the apostles. And were there for, they were there with Christ before he was. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit would fall upon all of mankind. Not just on the men. Falls on all of us. Let's not squabble over who can lead and who can't over gender issues, but call leaders by character and giftings as the early church did. We need women who are willing to plant churches, go into areas where the gospel is needed. Boy, if my little girl, I have a little girl, I don't know what I'm having, but if I have a little girl next, I will raise her and equip her to lead movements. That's my job as her dad. It's my job as a pastor is to equip people and let them go. In Utah County, you know how many men I've seen saved? Zero. You know how many women I've seen saved? Many. We are going to release those women. We are going to build them up, equip them so they can lead more. Because the Bible does not restrict women in leadership. We need women... Who, who have the giftings and the callings. You Look at Liz Micah. Tell her she doesn't have a gift of teaching. Look at Siri. She has a gift of teaching. Tell me Kaylin Hess can't teach because she's a woman. It doesn't make sense. I call for freedom for women in this first century bondage. And that's what this is. It's a first century bondage. The same type of like, logical thinking was why Christianity embraced slavery for so many years. It's not in Scripture. It's not there. I wish I could talk about all of them, but I can't. I don't have time. It's just not there. So no more will the enemy incapacitate half of the body of Christ. Because that's exactly what he's done. He's taken half the body of Christ and said, no, you can't do that. That needs to end. We need to go out, men and women, life united in equality, praising God and honoring God in everything that we do. That is the call. That is the mission. Let's stand. If you're next to somebody, grab their hand, grab their shoulder. Let's stand united. And equality United in equality with one common goal is to reach the lost with the message that we have, with the spirit who came in us and is ready to explode out of us, the power of the gospel. Male or female, no matter class or race, it does not matter. God does not look at that. Let's pray. Lord, I first want to open it up to anybody who doesn't know you who doesn't believe you are the Messiah Jesus that you died on the cross that you were resurrected on the third day and that you sit now at the right hand of God Lord I want those people to come to you so they can understand what it means to be unified within the body of Christ if they're alone if they're seeking bring them into your body so they can be loved and brought in with a greater purpose and Lord, I want to pray for those who, who this, where this issue has been such a bondage. This issue has been something that's paralyzed them, that they didn't feel that they were good enough or they were disqualified because of gender. Let that bondage be broken in your name, Jesus. That no longer will the church be divided over this issue, but that we can be united in equality with a common front and win this state, God for you and your glory. If you're one who needs to know Jesus, I want you to raise your hand now so we can pray with you. Amen. Amen. I see you. 
And for those who are held in bondage over this issue, who struggle with this issue, let it go. The Bible is clear on what it says. Let it go. No longer will division hinder this body of Christ. If you need prayer, come forward. Get prayer. See this release from your life. In your glorious name, the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Praise God.